Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can find the show online at buildingthefutureshow.com or follow me on Twitter at Building Show. You can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Lior Tamir, an entrepreneur, advisor, founder, and CEO of Accomplice. Lior, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, doing this. Uh, you have quite an impressive background, and uh, maybe we should start off with where you grew up. Sure. So, um, you know, I was originally born in Israel. Uh, it's a tiny little country in the Middle East that always gets attention for the wrong things. But, um, you know, immigrated to the United States when I was five, and I settled down in, um, in the Bay Area. So I grew up in Foster City. Um, and that's definitely had a huge influence on, you know, just being around uh, the tech, tech community, how I kind of got involved. Sure. So how come you or how did you guys end up in uh, kind of the Bay Area? Uh, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, my, uh, my mother used to run the rehab unit in the main hospital in, uh, in Hadassah in uh, Jerusalem. And my dad's brother was a, uh, was a commando in the 1981 Lebanon War. Um, and he was injured. He ended up being in a coma, um, and he was my mom's patient. Um, at the time, my dad was serving in the military, but he was uh, based in San Francisco, translating uh, mechanical engineering books from English to Hebrew. Oh wow! And um, so he was he was based out here during that time. When his brother got injured, uh, he moved to uh, he went back to Israel, and actually that's how my parents met. Um, but then you know they they settled back down. Um, they got married. Uh, once, once we were born, um, I have a brother and a sister as well. Um, you know, the, there was con- continued, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, troubles in Israel in terms of violence and so on. And um, in 1991, there was the Gulf War. Um, after the Gulf War, my parents decided that that was enough and um, that they were going to leave and, and immigrate to the uh, United States. Um, and when they did so, you know, the, my, my dad had most of his contacts here in the Bay Area, and so it was just uh, the only place that he knew people, and, and that was the reason we ended up here. So totally by, by random chance. Sure. So, no, that's awesome for you, especially being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, it's changed a lot. You know, I think, uh, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, the, the entire Bay Area – um, I mean, Bay Area has always been known, Silicon Valley has always been known as the tech capital, but um, it's only become, uh, you know, more and more pronounced. And so uh, it worked out. Uh, it worked out great. I, I owe a lot to my parents. Sure. No. So I'm, I'm curious then, before we kind of get into your startup and what you were doing, you started off kind of as a jazz musician. Do you want to kind of tell the listeners kind of how you got into playing jazz? Sure. Um, so it's, uh, it's another one of those uh, funny stories. My, my dad was a professional musician um, for many years, and uh, growing up, um, you know, the, the things that were important to my parents in terms of values to instill in us, uh, one of the big ones was music. Um, so, you know, instead of, uh, I didn't really play soccer or sports or things of the sort, I, I had to play music. I didn't really have much of a choice growing up. Um, more and more so, that became... Uh, you know, more than just a hobby, and I ended up uh, uh, getting to the point that I could play uh, decently well. Um, I remember I had an instructor when I was in high school who forced me to try out for the state jazz band. Um, and he forced me is, is uh, key there because it just really didn't seem like that was going to become my career. Um, I, I ended up trying out. I ended up becoming the lead alto uh, saxophone player for the state jazz band and um, 
ended up doing uh, you know some tours and, and playing with some pretty impressive musicians, um, and that became more and more the theme. Um, and when I ended up going to college, um, initially my my core focus was uh, was around music, um, and and by that time I had already spent a lot of time not just performing but also in recording studios, mastering studios, working with audio engineers, and and I was really fascinated by that entire space. Um, and uh, you know, I, I got into school, um, and there was a uh, an accident that happened in my personal life um, that kind of got me to take two steps back and rethink where I wanted to go with my life. And I decided that music was was great as a hobby, but not necessarily a career. Um, and that's when I s- switched over to the sciences. Right, and that's when you became a dentist, or does that come later? Yeah, so that, you know, it's a few. <laughs> that that was a few steps. So. Um, when I when I left, the, I guess music as as my core focus, I, I really ended up uh, doing a lot of work and studying uh, genetics. Um, so I, I went to University of the Pacific uh, in Stockton, California, um, and they have an, an amazing program uh, for music. They also have an amazing program for um, for just the sciences and also um, the, the dental school. Uh, so University of Pacific Dental School is the um, top clinical school in, in the nation. It's based here in San Francisco and. Um, it was just kind of a natural progression. Um, I ended up uh, studying genetics at uh, at University of Pacific undergrad, um, and when I uh, when I got out, my uh, Jewish mother got on my case, and uh, dentistry at the time seemed like the most logical next step. Um, and I ended up uh, applying and going to dental school um, to become a dentist. Um, so that was that was the next step there. So once you finished dentistry, how long were you a dentist for? So. Um, Dentistry has played a really important part of my life. Actually, my, my business partner and I, um, you know, use dentistry essentially to, uh, you know, to not only establish ourselves but also, um, you know, get to the point that we had some capital that we could invest into uh, ventures that we wanted to. Um, practicing dentistry, uh, you know, I, I spent uh, essentially as soon as I got out of school. So I, I graduated and I had finished all my clinical work and was licensed, ready to go by. Um, the end of 2009. Um, at the time, there was, uh, you know, the economy was still kind of in a slump, and um, you know, it, it just. It, I was also extremely young in terms of uh, when I finished. I, I uh, was able to do all of that and, and finish um, by the time I was 23. Oh and wow! So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I've always uh, rushed things. Um, not necessarily uh, something that uh, you know. I, I wish I could go back sometimes and, and have taken more classes around. Uh, the arts and just things that interest me, um, but at the time I just wanted to get through things. Uh, so I ended up um, uh, wrapping up with school, and I was practicing part time, uh, so you know, just a, on a limited basis uh, for many years. Um, so you know, I, I, at first I was practicing maybe three days a week, then it became uh, two days a week, then two days every other week, and and so on, um, un- until I kind of uh, established my. Uh, you know my my entrepreneurial uh, ventures and, and kind of was able to um, you know to set the dentistry aside. Uh, so I, I practiced uh, on a part-time basis for uh, maybe three or four years, uh, and and now you know occasionally I'll go into an office, but I don't practice anymore. So then, how did you get into technology, and what was kind of the driving factor to make you say, you know what, I really want to pursue this and move out of dentistry? Um, so you know, I would never. Uh, I guess put myself in a box and say I was just a dentist or just a musician or just an entrepreneur. I think, um, you know, since the earliest days in my life, uh, business and, and just being an entrepreneur was kind of ingrained in me. Uh, um, my my uh, parents were entrepreneurs. 
um, in many in many aspects. I mean, they came to the United States with nothing, uh, three kids and five suitcases, and, and you know that was a huge risk. But even in their uh, in terms of business, um, you know, my, my mom continued and ended up working at uh, Stanford here, running their rehab unit. Um, you know, but my father always uh, was an entrepreneur, starting businesses, and um, and uh, I learned a lot from that. And so, you know, at an early age, I was already uh, whether it was selling things on eBay or or uh, you know selling my services, uh, I was always an entrepreneur, and technology had also been a very important component of, uh, of that. So, you know, at an early age, I was taking computers apart, putting them back together, um, you know, providing just general services in terms of uh, uh, getting systems set up. Um, so, you know, technology was always uh, a very important component of, um, of being an entrepreneur, uh, I guess, in my case. Um, when I was in dental school, so the last year and a half, um, it was right around then that I, I really started, um, you know, thinking about, okay, well, what's next and what do I really want to do with my life? Um, and I, I started getting involved more, more so in the tech, tech community and just technology in general. Um, and I'd, I'd help, uh, I did a little, a little bit of work helping a team get a, a travel app going. Um, I also had my own e-commerce store that I ran out of my, um, uh, my apartment at the time. Um, and when I got out of uh, dentistry, as I mentioned, the economy was kind of in a slump. Um, I, it was very difficult to get uh, work as a practicing dentist, especially because in terms of um, in terms of uh, uh, my family, I didn't have any dentists that um, you know that were already established that I could go and get a job in an office. So, um, you know, technology. Well, entrepreneurship became the only way to move forward. Technology was the area that I felt was um, you know where I could make the most impact, but also. Um, really pursue what uh, what was truly driving me, and, and that was kind of um, how I decided to go down that path. Um, now, you know, in terms of uh, being a technologist, I, I very much so understand, um, you know, the complexities of the technology, the different technologies that are available. I don't necessarily code myself, um, but you know, it was it was a very conscious decision at the time, looking at you know what were my options, where was the you know the economy growing, and, and just the general markets, and saying okay. I really want to uh, pursue and kind of spend my, my time and effort in technology. No, I think that's awesome. And it sounds like you've had a passion for it for a number of years before you even started kind of anything really technology related or, or like at least full time. Right out of being coming a dentist or while you were still practicing being a dentist, did you start Accomplice or, or kind of when did you start that up? Sure. So Accomplice is, um, I would say, my fourth tech venture. Um, so Accomplice only came about uh, maybe to, we're about two and a half years old now. Um, but you know, before I was building Accomplice, there was a few other uh, ventures that um, you know that I had pursued. The one immediately before Accomplice was uh, essentially a social listening platform. Um, and at the time, um, this was kind of in the early days of uh, of social listening. Um, before it became a lot more commoditized, but we were working on helping brands and marketers take uh, vast amounts of text, so unstructured uh, data, and be able to make sense of it. Um, so, you know, using um, you know all kinds of uh, data processing and, and uh, natural language processing algorithms to kind of look at vast amounts of text, be able to process it and, and spit it back out in a way that a marketer, whether it's a brand marketer or someone working on a content strategy, could kind of slice and dice a conversation to better understand the quality. Uh, qualitative insights. Um, it's interesting because 
when I took that to market, we were working with um, with brands like Warner Music Group and Atlantic Records. Um, and one of the things that we we learned from this process was um, they were able to find really great and substantial insights from our our solution. But you know, taking those insights and then applying it to um, one sort of uh, marketing effort, whether it was a, you know putting together a content strategy or better developing an audience for paid media efforts, um, that was kind of where the gap uh, you know lied always with what we had brought to market and what the market really needed. Um, and so, you know, at the time, um, what we had decided to do was essentially uh, wind that uh, that product down, that company down. And we, when I started Accomplice, um, you know, there was a very specific goal, and, and we kind of went in with a specific uh, problem that we were going to solve. Um, so, you know, I would say that Accomplice has been in development, or, the, or what we do at Accomplice uh, was only possible because I had spent, you know, the previous three and a half years uh, building, you know, similar or technology in, in the similar space. Uh, really understanding and learning from that, and then uh, re- you know rebooting and, and coming coming back at the space with something that's truly valuable. Right. Okay. So maybe let's talk about exactly what Accomplice does. Absolutely. Um, I, I always talk about what Accomplice does in the context of uh, you know the, the problem that exists in the market. Um, and so you know uh, the the problem that I always talk about is over the last ten years we've seen a uh, a huge proliferation of channels in terms of how you reach uh, consumers online. Um, so if you you know rewind 10 years ago, it really was you know banner ads, so display advertising um, and search engines. And then over the last 10 years, we've seen a proliferation of of channels, um, a lot of it due to social, and then each one of those channels with their with their ad product. Um, so we went from you know search engines and, and and banner ads to now there's Facebook ads and Twitter ads and Instagram ads and Pinterest ads and LinkedIn ads and Snapchat is, is rolling out ads and you know Tumblr and, and so on and uh, this continues to only proliferate. As a marketer, you know, in terms of the technology that you have available, most of that technology has been very reactive. So you know, Facebook ads launches, um, and then all of a sudden you have multiple or hundreds of third-party solutions to help you manage Facebook ads. And Twitter ads launches, and the same thing. And what ended up happening is you have each one of these channels being managed in a complete silo. So as a marketer, um, you know, if, if let's say you have a $50,000 budget and you want to drive whether it's app downloads or e-commerce purchases or whatever it might be, um, today there's a lot of manual work that happens in terms of thinking through how you should allocate your budget, building out campaigns and audiences, and then throughout the campaign process, you're launching and managing each one of these channels independently using another solution like an analytic solution to kind of make sense of um, or, or get insights into well, what is truly driving your actual conversions and the thing you care about and what is it costing you and then budget allocations are still done manually um, so mixed models and things of the sort. Uh, so that's, that's really the problem that Accomplice solves for uh, which is today to manage multiple paid channels is just a full-time job and um, anyone who's actually stuck doing this uh, you know, is, is spending hours upon hours um, you know, jumping between different tools, analytics tools, uh, using analysts to, to, you know, to download um, all the data from each one of the individual channels and uh, try to put together some sort of attribution story. Um, so Accomplice solves for this. Today, Accomplice is the only solution that exists in market where you can set one budget with a goal. Um, so you can tell the system, here's $50,000. I want to drive app downloads or app engagement or whatever it might be. Um, then we support uh, multiple channels. Uh, you can build out your campaigns and audiences for each one press a button and um, what our system will do is not only set the bids and the budgets within each individual channel, optimize 
for performance there, but based on the performance in real time, it'll reallocate your budgets accordingly. So if it's seeing better performance from Facebook than Twitter, it'll shift money accordingly, uh, you know, Facebook to Google, um, and so on. And so um, what this really uh, empowers the marketing to do is, you know, worry less about, you know, how do I actually manage the money once it's launched, how to identify what are the best channels to drive the conversions, um, and you know, this essentially makes your marketing channel agnostic, where you can um, you know, be certain that there's a machine that um, you know, intelligently manages the money. It's always going to do it better um, you know, than, than humans can at scale, um, and that's really where, where the sweet spot is for our solution. So um, you know, that's the problem we solve, and, and that's kind of how it came about. No, I, I think that's awesome, and I think that's kind of what fascinated about, uh, me about your product is the fact that, you know, yeah, I can set a budget and then based on what's converting better, it kind of automatically moves, you know, my budget around to the different networks, which I think um, you guys are the only ones doing it that I've seen. And I, I don't even think anybody's even doing anything remotely close to what you guys are doing. So that's why really why I wanted to have you guys on the show, because I think what you guys are doing is really, really awesome and super, super useful. Thank you. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things is we always get asked, well, how did we pull this off or, um, you know, how is it that no one else did? And we're talking about a space that's extremely crowded. You have 2,000 companies plus in the space that are, you know, each trying to solve one part of the big challenge. And, and yet none of them has been able to bring to market a solution that, that does this specifically. Um, and a lot of it really comes comes down to understanding what the technology is required to do. So, you know, the approach that we took is we didn't just go out and build a tool to build your Facebook ads, your Twitter ads, your Google ads, and so on, but we built an entire analytics stack. So, um, you know, in one system, uh, we built a, you know, a, a web analytics and mobile app analytics and user attribution suite, which, um, which serves as, a, you know, the, the one source of truth. Um, so, you know, what we're able to do because we have the analytics stack is we can create the campaigns, we can measure the results, there's a closed feedback loop there where now um, because we have the user, uh, you know, user profiling stack behind the scenes, we can identify the same users as they interact with, let's say, a Facebook ad, a Twitter ad, a, a Twitter post, and whatever it might be. Um, and then that, of course, informs the optimization. So we took a very holistic approach in terms of what the market needed. Um, instead of multiple tools, we kind of, uh, you know, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We took existing tools and how they're being used independently, you know, brought them together. And the way that they're brought together and the optimization that sits on top of it, that's really the unique aspect of, um, you know, of, of why we were able to pull this off. Sure. No, I, I think that's really good. And just for the listeners out there, it's accomplice.io is the website. And I'll post it in the show notes as well, as as well as a few other links. But just for people listening, it's accomplice.io. So I'm curious to know um, some lessons that you've learned from kind of doing this startup your and your previous startups, kind of good or bad? Sure. Um, well, you know, Startups, uh, startups are quite, quite the beast. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a quote that I once read uh, where it talked about, you know, what it feels like to be in a startup. And, uh, you know, I think the way it described it was being in a startup or running a startup is kind of like, a, uh, you know, essentially um, sitting on a, on a line or riding a line where, you know, when you're on top of it and, and it's, it's moving forward, it feels amazing, but then sometimes it'll turn around and just uh, bite you. Um, so, you know, uh, startups are, um, are a very challenging 
uh, I mean, any company really uh, is a, you know to, to get started is a startup, and, and that's always a challenging uh, thing to do. Um, you know, I, I do work with a lot of startups in terms of uh, just advising them and, and helping them think through their challenges. Um, I would say that you know the the one mistake that I usually see startups make. Um, more so than everything is just the validation process, right? Um, you know, the, there's so much importance in terms of before you get started, uh, whether it's a food startup and you're making a meal or a, a technology startup and you're building a, a product, um, you know, in terms of a startup, uh, you have to make sure that whatever it is that you're building truly has a purpose and is truly solving a problem. Uh, and I, I see so many startups that, you know, are building novel technology but didn't really spend time to validate up front and really do the research and identify um, you know, what is it that they're trying to solve, um, how valuable is it to, to whoever they're trying to solve for, and how much are they really willing to pay for it if they were willing to pay for it at all. Right? So it's really the difference between being a vitamin or a painkiller. Um, and I think that more so than all the other mistakes that I see startups make, um, that's the one that, uh, that I think is most important. And what I've learned, you know, and I, I'm, uh, I've taken my own advice in terms of, you know, I, I made a similar mistake um, in my previous companies where, you know, I hadn't taken the time to truly validate, interview, talk to people, and, and, and make sure that, you know, what I was solving was what needed to be solved. Um, so I would say that's probably the most important lesson. Um, at the end of the day, startups are just people. And I know it's, people talk about this, and it's, it sounds very cliched, but your team and the people that you get to do this with are everything. Um, because there's always going to be ups and downs. There's always going to be challenges. But it's really, it really comes down to having the right people there, not only just to support you, but also um, you know, pull off the, whatever the startup is trying to do that uh, eventually defines the success. No, I, I think those are really good. And I think people forget about that all the time. It seems like a lot of people just want to build these little or turn like a feature into a company and then they kind of wonder why they fail. So I think that's really good advice to validate an idea and especially when you've been through it yourself, right? Absolutely. There is a book that I always recommend called The Four Steps to Epiphany. Um, I mean, it's, it's the Bible for thinking through. And I, I think that, you know, the context of the book is written um, in terms of kind of technology products, but you can apply that to anything, right? You can really apply um, the validation process and thinking through that uh, to any business. And I, um, I can't underemphasize, overemphasize, excuse me, how important, um, how important that, that step is. Is there any other tips that you'd give people for kind of validating their idea? Like, do you just ask friends and family online? Kind of how do you go about validating an idea? So, you know, I would say validation has to be very contextual to whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, so, you know, if you are, for example, in, in our case, right, with Accomplice, we were building a solution for marketers and a very specific type of marketer. Um, so marketers that are, you know, spending money online, required to do the analysis, the attribution, um, and so on. So, you know, when we, before we touched any line of code or even, uh, you know, thought about that, uh, we spent about three months just interviewing um, hundreds of marketers and, and media buyers and media managers and media planners. And so, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the research that we did was very contextual to the industry. So I would say, you know, no matter what it is that you're trying to do, um, the validation should be very specific to that. So, you know, if you're trying to, uh, you know, get a hair care line out, right, you're going to want to talk to people that work in salons or, or you know, professional hair care that might get that feedback or provide that feedback to you. Um, and the way that, val you know, validation 
sometimes you don't even know what you're looking for, right? And so um, it, it's very important that when you design validation interviews out, right, the questions are broad but still very centered and contextual to what you're trying to solve. Um, and it requires being an exceptional listener and, um, and really picking up on, you know, the challenges and, and understanding the workflow that someone is, uh, is faced with, the challenges that are specific to that workflow, and then, you know, of course, um, validation is not also a process that just ends at the you know, you do it at first and then you, you stop. Validation has to continuously happen as you're bringing something to market. Um, you know, so, you know, once you go through the first set of validation interviews, you might have a pretty good sense of what it is that you need to build. The next step then is to, you know, start prototyping something. And as you do that, you know, constantly getting the feedback, the validation, and making sure that, yep, this is exactly the direction that you're supposed to be going. This is what you're supposed to be solving. And if you do it and do it successfully, people will pay you money for it. Oh, that, I think that's really awesome advice. So I'm curious then, is there anything that you wish you did differently with Accomplice or just based on your history, you're pretty happy with how things are going so far? Um, well, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to learn uh, not to have regrets and, and, uh, and, you know, work and move forward. Uh, personally, as an entrepreneur, um, I could tell you that I'm very much uh, self-aware and I audit everything I do on a regular basis. And so, um, you know, there's, there's not much I, I can look back and say, man, I, I really wish I did that different other than, um, you know, I, I would say the, the biggest advice uh, in terms of thinking through that would be, or at least from my experience would be, um, you know, sometimes when you don't have the right people, um, I, I'd wished I would, I'd let them go earlier rather than trying to find excuses or ways to make it work with them. Um, and so, you know, one of the important things that I always tell entrepreneurs is, you know, what you got in the bank and, and the team that you have, that is really the only tools that you have. So you really need to make sure that A, you're spending your money right, and B, that you have the right people. And even if you have an inkling that the person that you have on your team, for whatever role it might be, is not the right person, you have that, that gut feeling where you know, you're not seeing the results, um, you know, my, my most important advice is to uh, cut your losses and, um, and rethink that component of your business. Uh, so you know, in terms of what I wish I had done differently, of course, validation, right? But I think that comes from uh, a level of cognition and, and kind of experience. Um, the second would be really, um, you know, being able to identify what's working, what's not working in your business, and making decisions faster, rather than finding excuses or finding, tr you know, trying to find ways to make it work. Um, the third, I would say, is get your legal documents in order. Um, so I actually have had a lot of experience with um, legal documents that I didn't have uh, done right and um, cost me a lot of time, effort, money, pain. Um, and so, you know, I would say those are the, I guess, the three things that, um, you know, as I made a mistake as an entrepreneur, I look back and say, oh, well, you know, I probably should have done that differently. I, I think you touched on a really important point here is uh, the legal documents. So what would you recommend to people that they should have kind of in place, you know, kind of at the beginning and maybe even later on in a startup? Sure. Um, so, you know, again, depending on what type of startup or company that you're trying to build, um, you know, the, there's a lot of, there's so much variation there, right? Um, there's a great book uh, that I read early on. Um, I think it's called Venture Deals. Um, I'm, I'm pretty certain that that's, 
that's what it's called. But essentially, there's so many things to think through. You know, what is the corporate corporation structure? Is an LLC, an S corp, a C corp? You know, if you're going down the technology uh, company route, it's it's typically going to be a C corp, so that um, you can have different types of uh, of stock. But you know, the biggest mistakes always come down to contracts, right? And um, you know, if you think about the purpose of a contract. The contract is supposed to be a uh, you know formal document that outlines what each side of the agreement, what each um, you know, which each each party is uh, going to be doing, and um, you know over the years I've I've learned to think about contracts in the context of you know let's write out every single possible scenario or you know within reason of things that could go right and wrong, and then design the contract around that to address you know how both parties would want to deal with uh, you know each one of those uh, scenarios. So. Um, you know, contracts should really have a purpose. Um, I would say getting your corporate structure, you know, and 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 making sure that that's right is critical. Um, you know, but but contracts can be everything in context of you know having an employee with a vesting schedule um, or co-founder even with a vesting schedule, um, and all the way to you know how do you write the right type of contracts with customers to ensure that liabilities is shared across the board or, or on your end depending on business um, accordingly. So. You know, contracts, uh, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, just because there's so much typically that they have to do, um, sometimes they get overlooked or, or done improperly or, um, you know, corporate governance hasn't been kept up to date. Um, I can't, you know, I, I can't stress this enough. It's so critical to have, uh, you know, the right legal documents and really cleaned up corporate governance in place to scale and, and kind of operate a successful business. No, I, I think that's Really, really good advice because you're right. I think a lot of people do forget about that, even especially early on or if it's like two guys doing it kind of just in the evening or or girls, I should say, um, you know, they forget about that stuff. Right. And you never know if something's going to take off and you're like, oh, oh, we didn't set all this up properly. And I've seen where people get in some pretty big fights over it and, and whatnot. So it makes sense just to kind of cover yourself and your partners and your employees and even your customers. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, um, I tell advisors, and I also partake in this, is, um, you know, I've learned uh, over the years that having the right advisors is so, so important. Um, you know, in my, in my career, I've had, uh, you know, several different advisors, but I've had one specific advisor who's essentially been kind of like my CEO coach, and um, he's the guy that I call whenever shit hits the fan, but he's, he's the type of guy that, you know, can give me advice on, you know, how I go about my um, the legalities and how things get structured and so on. So having someone that has been there, done that, and, and you can really um, depend on them to get the right type of advice is, is something that's um, super important and something that I would uh, suggest to all entrepreneurs out there. Sure. No, I, I think that's really good advice. And it seems anybody that I've had on the show so far, pretty much all of them have mentioned about how important having an advisor or mentor is and has been to their success. And so I'm curious to know, I know you advise some companies, but I'm curious to know what do you look for when, you know, trying to find an advisor and what do you look for as an advisor? Uh, Well, I think what are you looking for when you're trying to find an advisor is pretty simple. You have to identify what it is that you want advice on, right? Um, so, you know, if it's, if it's a general day-to-day CEO kind of stuff or how do you run a company, um, you know, you want to find someone who's been there um, sure. or, and done that. If, if it's something related to product, if you're looking for advice on, you know, well, how do I design a product and, and how, how does UI UX kind of play into the, um, you know, the, the engagement within a product, well, you're going to want someone that has 
done that in that context, right? Um, you know, a UI UX designer or someone with, with expertise and, and, uh, and can provide and kind of uh, shine the light on the areas uh, that you might need advice. So in terms of when you are looking for an advisor, it's really important to know what you're trying to get advice on and then finding the people that are um, accredited or, or, you know, have the chops and, and the experience to be able to provide that advice. Um, in terms of me, when I, when I look for companies that I advise, a lot of it, uh, well, it comes down to two things. Uh, what what is the company doing, and do I really believe that a there's um, you know there's a proper uh, or there's a, an appropriate market that's large enough, and 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 also that their solution is designed to solve that challenge, and b of course it's it's the entrepreneurs right. So um, being an entrepreneur requires a lot of sacrifice, uh, an immense amount of focus, and um, and just you have to be resilient. Uh, and so you know I really look for for entrepreneurs that um, I know are not going to get cold feet you know three months in or, or a year and a half in and, and kind of um, and give up when things get, get tough. So, you know, if I'm already going through the process to invest my time, um, you know, to, to help someone out, I just want to make sure that they, um, that they want to help themselves and also take this all the way. Sure. So when you're advising companies, are they usually local or you kind of will advise somebody that you could potentially never meet because they're, you know, across the globe or in another part of the country? So I've, I've definitely advised companies remotely. Um, I always do think that there's immense amount of value in, in meeting at least once or twice in person because business is so much about people. Um, so it's, it's very rare that I will work with a, a business remotely, um, but, you know, it's not to say never, right? Um, uh, so, you know, I think that's uh, – it, it really depends more so on the opportunity, you know, what, what the um, – you know what the entrepreneur is, is trying to achieve, and um, and and how global do they need to be? And you know, there's there's always opportunities to work with people even if it's remote, um, and, and technology makes that easier. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I've always kind of wondered when you're advising companies, other you give your time. Do you potentially give any money, or do you get any like stock options, or a percentage of the company, or is it kind of really up to the company and the advisor. Um, it's definitely totally up to the company and the advisor, and it depends also on what is the skill set that that quote-unquote advisors bring to the table. Um, you know, for a startup, it's usually easier to, to give up equity. Um, you know, for for and then again, um, I think if you're doing an engagement purely on equity, you really want to make sure that um, that there's still expectations because you know when you're not exchanging money, sometimes it feels like um, it's a little bit more casual, uh, but but again, um, you know, in terms of whether you go cash or equity or, or a combination of the two, um, it really depends on who the advisor is, what can they bring to the table, how badly you need them, and how you know how much do they need the money versus how much do they believe in the in the vision. Um, so there's no real rules. I would say, uh, you know, you you have to kind of look at your situation in terms of the company, right? Um, so, you know, if the company is uh, equity rich and cash poor, then it's probably going to try to identify the right people, get them uh, excited enough and, and bring them on as uh, equity-based advisors. Um, you know, the, the one thing that is also critical is to really have a focus of the advisory, um, you know, relationship. So many times there's advisors that are brought on, you know, maybe just for intros or something of the sort, but uh, even in that context, right, you, you need to make sure that there's expectations on both sides. They're clearly communicated, documented, of course, uh, legally, 
um, in some sort of agreement and, um, and then just regular check-ins and uh, very transparent communication. Sure. No, I think that's awesome. And I've always kind of been curious about that myself. So I, I, and I think my listeners would be curious about that as well. So I think that's really good advice. So in kind of wrapping up the show a little bit, I'm curious to know if you can maybe give anybody advice on kind of marketing their companies, any do's and don'ts. Sure. Uh, well, we can spend hours on that, but you know the <laughs> the <laughs> marketing is an interesting thing. I think uh, many many companies, brands, entrepreneurs, um, you know, sometimes don't understand how marketing really plays in. And marketing has so many different meanings. It could be everything from brand marketing to performance marketing to press, whatever it might be. Um, you know, as a company, or if you're trying to do marketing for an entity, entity X, right? Um, you have to really think about the funnel, not so much as just what's happening online, but, you know, how are people uh, hearing about you, right? So, you know, in terms of marketing, every stage of a company requires a different type of marketing. At the really early stages, it requires, you know, a lot more uh, content and and kind of being able to articulate your value proposition um, in in a really powerful and and succinct and articulate way. Um, You know, as you kind of build a reputation, kind of have more of a presence online, um, then the next step is, okay, now we got to kind of have a funnel um, that, that's working already. How do we take things to the next level? And there's all kinds of ways around that, you know, and it includes quality content, um, activating using paid media, and so on. Um, you know, so I would say that the, there's a few mistakes that I usually see companies do. One is, you know, they don't really understand what phase they are and they're at and kind of what um, appropriate marketing is required. Uh, you know, the one thing that I always tell people is digital marketing is not, a, uh, you know, is not a solution, uh, is not something that will help if you don't already have your, your messaging kind of in place, a story that you're telling, and, and already something that's working. Um, so I'll give you an example. I've worked with um, companies in the past where I'll, I'll walk into their operation and see that they're, you know, selling $10 shampoo for $15 and 50, and also has $15 in shipping. So the shipping is more expensive than the shampoo, and they're not necessarily sure why they're not able to get conversions. Um, and they've tried paid advertising, but again, nothing is leading to convert. Um, and so that's a typical scenario where I'll go in and ask them even the logical questions. Well, you know, paid marketing is not, uh, is not going to help until that part is, is figured out. Um, and let's say, you know, the, they'll end up changing the strategy. In this case, it was they give away free shipping. They started to see a lot more conversions or actual conversions, and then paid advertising can kind of supercharge or turbocharge that, right? So, you know, in terms of marketing, it's so critical to first identify what are you trying to achieve, what is that goal, right? Um, then it's really making sure that you have the right measurement tools in place to be able to, um, you know, to, to kind of see what's happening. And then marketing is really, you know, should be practiced as a scientific process, right? You have a hypothesis. It might be, your, you know, if you do Facebook ads, you might be, you, you'd be able to sell shampoo X or product Y or get people to sign up for your newsletter. Um, and then marketing should really be practiced as a bunch of small tests. Right, whether it's test on content, on targeting, on copy, on you know, uh, you know, native ads, press releases, and so on, um, then you know, of course, measuring how all those different efforts or tests that you're uh, that you're running are driving or impacting the bottom line, and honing in on what's working and, and dialing that in. So, um, you know, marketing uh, should be very goal-oriented. 
Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of technology out there, so really understanding how the technology is related to the phase that you're in, having the right measurement stack in place, and then, of course, running a bunch of experiments to identify what's working. Sure. No, I, I think that's awesome advice. And it sounds like you're trying to solve a lot of those problems and are solving a lot of those problems with Accomplice. We're solving, we definitely have a long way to go. And I would say that, um, you know, as our product continues to evolve, there's going to be so much more that we're going to add. But yeah, we're definitely taking a very important chunk of uh, where, um, where I would say the most, uh, where, where mistakes are the most expensive um, and solving for that first and then continuing to branch out and um, hopefully eventually get to the point that we're uh, an entire top of the funnel stack. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And so maybe just kind of in closing here, let's share any other advice that you'd have for aspiring entrepreneurs. Mm, uh, I would say um, uh, that's a good one. So, you know, we talked about teams. We talked about making sure that you validate and solve a problem. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is so much about resilience and, um, and solving problems. And, um, you know, don't give up is, is something that's, that's critical. Um, you really have to be, you have to almost tailor your life to the experience that you're about to embark on. Um, there's so many ups and downs. There's been times where I've had to couch surf and um, times where I've had to max out my credit card to maintain the company or keep the company afloat. Um, so, you know, being an entrepreneur is definitely uh, not an easy thing. I would say it's, it's more challenging than just about, um, you know, just about anything out there. Uh, and so, you know, really be dedicated, understand that resilience is key. Um, your network, you know, your network is so, so, so important. Um, and not just the network where you know someone or bumped into them once and you got a LinkedIn connection, but having a group or a network, um, and of course this takes years to develop, but, uh, you know, the right people that you can call up and ask for help or ask for advice or ask for introductions. Um, so having a, a well-established network, I think as an entrepreneur, you have to become a power networker. Um, which is a, a critical component. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of what comes to mind. No, I, I think that's really great advice. So just kind of to close the show, let's promote a, a little bit where people can find you online. There's a course, accomplice.io, but maybe if you want to share any other uh, sites or social media links, and I'll, I will post these in the show notes as well. Sure. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of an anomaly. I, I mainly use LinkedIn. So um, whether it's connecting with me there, sending me notes, um, uh, you know, I, I've started to use uh, Twitter uh, more so. But I, you know, in general, I'm, I'm quite a private person. I do most of my posting and, um, and publications either through the company, um, so Accomplice, or, um, or on LinkedIn. Um, and so that's probably the best way to reach me. No, that's, that's great. And, uh, well, that's sadly we're out of time so we're gonna have to close it there but this has been awesome and i'm really really do appreciate you taking the time under your busy schedule to do the show and yeah i'm sure the listeners are really going to enjoy this so again thanks for being on the show my, my pleasure kevin thanks so much appreciate it and um and looking forward to to uh to continue to support what you're doing uh, love the show thanks man we'll talk soon okay take care bye Thanks for listening. You can visit past shows at buildingthefutureshow.com. If you're going to the Startup Expo on February 16th and 17th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and want to record an episode, please contact me. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Check him out at electricmantra.com. 
Until next time, keep building the future.